Hi, I'm Chris Peterson, and this is Cast, a podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, LionTree CEO Arya Borkov has an in-depth chat with Jill Gade, president and CEO of Cross River Bank. Dubbed a mitzvah-minded unicorn by TechCrunch, Cross River is a leading-edge fintech company that has provided over $36 billion in loans to over 18 million customers. In their conversation, Gade provides an extensive overview of tech's impact on the banking space and recounts the extraordinary efforts he and his team have made to help struggling companies stay afloat during the pandemic. To listen to other Kindred Media shows or receive our daily Take a Break newsletter, be sure to head to the link in our show notes. Now, please enjoy this uplifting conversation. Hi, everyone. It's Arie, and welcome back to Kindred Cast. I'm sitting down today with my friend Gilles Gade, the founder, president, and CEO of FinTech Powerhouse and Unicorn Cross River Bank. Cross River was started by Gilles in 2008 as a one-branch bank located in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, the technology company now powers companies like Affirm, Circle, Best Egg, Coinbase, Rocket Loans, Stripe, Upstart, and TransferWise, and are backed by big investments from KKR, our friends at Battery Ventures, Andreessen, and Liontree, to name a few. Over the past 12 years, the firm has grown to 350 employees, providing over $36 billion in loans to over 18 million customers. And during the crisis, Cross River helped nearly 200,000 small businesses with PPE loans through the Paycheck Protection Program, which really puts it in the company of the big banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, and Wells Fargo right there. Pretty impressive and very helpful to our overall recovery during this pandemic. The last two years, it was named the most innovative bank to work for. Jill, I'm going to try to give you a run for your money on that one here, Lion Tree. Um, <laughs> but I want to wish you a Shana Tava, a happy new year. It's a real pleasure and honor to kick off the year in the Jewish calendar 5781 with this podcast. And as I like to say, when you have gone for over 5,780 years, there's bound to be ups and downs. Same to you, uh, Shana Tava, and uh, pleasure to be with you, Arya, today. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. We've had the occasion of meeting over the last few years in restaurants and in periods of isolation and Zooms and in person. You're one of my first meetings with safety and security. And I really wanted to stay close during this pandemic, given how busy you've been. Let's give everyone a background here, because I really think through Cross River, everyone here is going to get a lens of not only the fintech universe and where we're going in banking versus where we've come from, but also what has been going on on the ground during the COVID period in helping so many businesses on Main Street get back on their feet again. And, and that's really why this is such a story around business and building a value, but also around helping people and around a real heartening narrative that I really want to, to bring out here today. Maybe you could tell us a story about how the company was founded in, in 2008. And it's a quite an unusual and interesting story. But tell us how it all came to be across the river at the very beginning. Sure. So um, I don't want to delve too long on the history because I think the more recent history is much more fascinating. Just trying to help 200,000 small businesses get back on their feet is 
has been for me probably the biggest highlight of my career. And uh, I think probably would be uh, the highlight of anybody's career at this stage. So uh, something that we're very, very proud of uh, here at Cross River. But go back in time. So I came to the United States from Paris, France. I was born and raised in Paris. I went to school there, uh, worked a little bit. Um, I was um, actually an analyst at Citicorp Venture Capital in Paris, uh, working on the LBOs. And for some of the first LBOs of time, 1989, 1990, in Europe, actually. And then crossed the Atlantic, came in 1991, got a job at Bear Stearns. Um, I was in um, international M&A working on privatization of banks and insurance companies. So that was my first foray on uh, financial services. So I got uh, very fortunate. I didn't know why I landed in uh, finishing the FIG group at uh, Bear Stearns. And now in retrospect, you kind of understand um, how God does things and uh, just puts uh, you know, some uh, pebbles along the way that one day you're gonna pick up to identify where you're headed. And then I took a hiatus when I got married and I went to learn the Talmud. Wow. Yeah, the Jewish ethics, which is a uh, commentary on, uh, on Jewish law in its compendium. I did that for a couple of years, came back to investment banking, and this time the only job I could land at the time was a little bit difficult to get back to the market. I worked for Barclays Capital. But wait a second, Jill, what did the Talmud tell you that made you want to jump back into banking? It was more by necessity to be able <laughs> to put food on the table, and I had a family to feed then. I needed to go back to work. I think. Yeah. Um, all my life savings were um, uh, totally exhausted. It's not a life that I was uh, prepared to undertake for the rest of my life. So uh, regretfully so, because it's, it's really a fascinating exercise. Definitely um, intellectually stimulating. Uh, yes. No question about it. But I still enjoy doing it, by the way. I still learn the Talmud every single day, study it, study the law. And this is something that will stay with me uh, probably you know, for the rest of my life. A lot of good business lessons and how to build a company in the Talmud. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely concepts of uh, humility, ethics, uh, respect of others, uh, listening to the other's position, and particularly respecting the other's position. And there's always a counterpoint, and, uh, and nobody's truly 100% right, and nobody's 100% wrong. There's yep. always a happy medium, or there's always way and room for compromise. And this is really a life lesson that, it, that is invaluable. Um, yeah. and, and by the way, you know, any book that I've read on entrepreneurship, and as uh, points to key CEOs that have successfully led their companies to an exponential organization have all exemplified some of those qualities. So just uh, learning about them uh, under a different concept, different setting, and they're trying to internalize them intellectually and then trying to apply them in the business world is something that I was very fortunate of being able to do. So you're 100% right. That's, that was very formative for me. And probably an essential step um, along my travels and my journey in becoming the CEO of Cross River. And then, like I was saying, like the only job I could land at the time was in technology banking. I knew nothing about technology at the time. I worked for Barclays Capital under Afsane Naimola, who was the global head of technology. I worked on some fascinating deals, global crossing, Iridium uh, satellite network. And then uh, we worked on the Dell transaction. We worked on the computer associate and CSC failed merger. It was really fascinating to, uh, to work on the technology front and try and, and learning about a new trade. And look at this, you know, like uh, some 15 years later, it's a rejoinder between technology and banking. Not yet, but while you were working on those transactions, I was actually a research analyst 
covering those companies, whether it was Global Crossing or Iridium and a lot of it from the high-yield bond financing side. So it's That's funny right. how our paths have uh, shadowed one another and now we get back to technology and banking. Yeah, the beauty about our jobs and our lives in general is when you come to the realization that everything has a purpose and it's just about patience and at some point it's going to break through. And yes. you just have to believe that in your ability and build a, a certain sense of confidence. And ultimately, once you express that confidence, even though luck sometimes doesn't strike necessarily at the first shot, but ultimately the doors open up. And the key is really to be ready for that opportunity when it occurs, to be ready mentally, physically, to be able to grab it and run with it. So that really is a big life lesson that I learned the hard way because it was not always easy. It's also, there's a great Steve Jobs line from one of the commencement speeches that he spoke at, I think at Stanford, where he says, you can connect the dots in life going backwards, but it's hard to connect the dots going forward. So in other words, when things happen, you're not really sure how that will connect in the future, but you have to be patient and be open to what could transpire. And that's been a real lesson to keep in mind during this pandemic period where you normally wouldn't think that there's a, a darkness or a, a end of game that you can't see, but that things open up and I think hopefully we'll have a brighter future ahead. Yeah, I could agree more. After that, actually, my boss at the time, Absani, broke off from Barclays, created our own firm. I came as a partner. We did that for five years, did a number of uh, very interesting transactions. And then I was just tired of being on the sell side. And, uh, and I said, I, I really want to be on the buy side. Maybe I should uh, try to stand as CFO uh, somewhere. So I did land a job at a, a mortgage company in, in New York called uh, Meridian and worked there for two years. And this opportunity came on my lap. And uh, is somebody knocked on our door, somebody who uh, was in the mortgage space, had started the bank charter, didn't know what to do with it, and uh, could not raise capital because in 2007, it was not easy to raise capital, particularly when you're coming from the mortgage world. And his business model basically was to create the bank to serve as a warehouse for his mortgage activity. And that was the business plan originally that was determined by him and sold to the regulators. So I picked up that business plan, raised $10 million and told him that I would like to take over the charter. And he gracefully uh, granted the ability for me to do that. What I did want to do though, was radically different. Mortgage assets were, and still are a phenomenal asset class. However, we need only to consider an asset class to be transient because, you know, there are different cycles in the life of an asset class. And there are upturns and downturns, and you don't want to be caught with a lot of assets on your books in a downturn, particularly if, because you never know what kind of risk management practices you need to put in place. I mean, we saw this twice over the past decade in 2008 and then again with COVID. So we really wanted to create a business model around churning the assets as quickly and as often as possible. And whether those assets were bonds, like for example, originally in 2008, we were very, very fortunate to participate in the TALF program. And uh, we put a, a, you know, a lot of assets on balance sheet with the government funds uh, deployed through TALF, 20 to one leverage on top of our own leverage. Uh, we deconsolidated by uh, creating an SPV, relinquished control and um, bought about $120 million of notional with $6 million of equity. And, and at the time, we only had like a $12 million balance sheet. And so you can imagine what kind of impact that had on our PL. You know, when uh, we oh, bought yeah. assets at 60, 70 cents on a dollar and then sold them at 80, 85 cents about uh, six months or a year later. We turned a profit after five quarters and we never looked back. And then suddenly we realized 
that if somehow we have the ability to borrow cheap and to deploy capital in very safe assets on an arbitrage kind of model, then that would be probably a winning solution. Now, the key is to try to identify the asset class before the market gets into the asset class. That's what happened with marketplace lending. We identified MPLs like very early on in 2009, 2010. And we started with Lending Club. That was our first client. And then Marlette, and then Upgrade, Upstart, the firm, Rocket Loans, um, C Plus, Freedom Plus, and then a slew of others that followed. And today, fast forward, we have a, a leadership position in marketplace lending, consumer lending particularly. We originate anywhere between 8 to 10 million loans annually, uh, representing anywhere between 12 to 15 billion. And this is, to me, being able to touch so many lives on a daily basis, when you push the button, we're not button pushers. What we believe truly is that we're saving lives because we extended a lifeline to people that needed the most that probably would not qualify for an equivalent line of credit to the traditional bank, or it would take probably enough time for them to go bankrupt during that time. Being able to deploy those lines, those lifelines, which I call them internally here at Crossroad, this is really the mentality that we have, is the fact that we consider these to be really key accessibility, cheap accessibility, fast accessibility to credit to a lot of consumers in the United States. Well, that's why last year, uh, TechCrunch called Crossover, quote, a mitzvah-minded unicorn. Is that what they meant by that? That's right. That's the way we look at it. So the, everything happens for a reason and almost happens by default. Or you could say, oh, you want a bad strategy. At the end of the day, you build your strategy as you go. It ends up being you play Monday morning quarterback and then you put a strategy deck together that makes sense based on the previous year and the previous two years of your history. That's kind of what we did. And we decided to get into payments by necessity because just our core processor could not handle that kind of volume on a daily basis of uh, sending ACHs to our, client, to our clients' customers. We started with an ACH platform, very simple. We created an API. We connected directly to the Fed because our core processor just could not handle the volume and the scalability. Well, when was this? That was in 2015. So 2015 is when you really start entering the fintech area. Right. 2014, 2015. And then one thing led to another. We started with initiation, then we did an automated wire, and then we did a uh, push-to-card. We're the first bank to do push-to-card in the country with Omni, which was bought by MasterCard ultimately. And we were MasterCard's only bank for like three years, uh, catering to folks like Stripe, like uh, Uber, like and a host of others that wanted a, a, a fast payment solution that was affordable to the customers. And one thing led to the next, and ultimately we accumulated clients, like you mentioned, folks like Coinbase, TransferWise at the time, and, and many others. And um, ultimately, fast forward today, where I think we are consistently in the top five banks in the country for same-day ACH. We are probably one of the top three or four banks for push the card. And on RTP, we're by far the smallest in an order of magnitude. So in other words, when we belong to the RTP, when we joined the RTP network, we were about $2.1 billion in assets. The second smallest bank was $110 billion in assets. Give people a sense of push to card, RTP, what it stands for, what it is, because not everyone listening in is a fintech banking expert. Sure, so push to card is a reverse debit. So in other words, when you go to the branch, or to an ATM and take a hundred bucks out, it hits your account almost instantly. You look at your um, online or your app, 
and then you take that $100 out from the ATM, you're going to see that $100 hitting your account instantly. So we just take the transaction in reverse. We're pushing payment using the pin debit networks onto the consumer's account. So the applicability of that is, you know, the ride share industry where you want to pay the Uber driver, the Lyft driver immediately after the ride. So that's what we do for them. It's a facility that we're providing. And by the way, we did that for Ticketmaster, for JetBlue, for refunds, for example, for baggage losses. When people didn't want to wait two weeks or three weeks to get a check in the mail, they wanted their money now. Like on the Ticketmaster side, if you want to sell tickets, you don't want to wait a week to get your check in the mail. So you're prepared to pay an extra 50 cents or 25 cents a day in order to have that facility to get a uh, quasi real-time payment. On the RTP side, that's a little bit different. That's uh, the real-time payment network, which is a uh, clearing with a, through the clearinghouse. So that's a network of bank that settle in the private manner. So it's not public, that means it doesn't belong to the Fed, but at the Fed, on the Fed bank account. So it's a network of 11 or 12 banks today that basically that represent roughly about 80 or 85% of all the transactions in the country. And those banks basically transact in real time because it's a little bit like a messaging in the cloud of posting a transaction like you want to pay me $10. You have the ability to do that through the RTP network, a little bit like Zelle if you want, but it's using a totally different network, different scheme. But that's very cost efficient. It's affordable and particularly it's real, real time. It's not yeah, so quasi it's, real time. It's really a platform, Crossover is really a platform that encompasses lending, payments, and risk management and makes the working capital time lag much more efficient in real time, effectively as a layer. In order to do that though, you need to build a very robust compliance environment as a wrap, but the underlying technology is key. And we built a portfolio of over 600 APIs. All these APIs constitute also a core processing engine that sits beneath that. So in other words, it's fine and dandy to have like the front end for the consumers and the user interface, and then you have the middleware, basically, which is the API layer that connects the front end to, uh, let's say, the, uh, the back end, which could be, uh, for example, the payment rails or whatnot. But if you're not a bank, you're not going to be able to connect to every single payment rail. You still need to connect to a bank, which itself is going to connect to the payment rail. So you're only as good as the underlying bank's core processor. So if that bank is using a core processor that is antiquated and has been developed on COBOL back 25 or 30 years ago, it's going to be a hindrance on your growth. And that's why a lot of the small fintechs, they're signing up with you know, some fintech companies that are facilitating the banking as a service or the transactional universe on your behalf, partnering with some community banks. Those community banks are great. They have their minds in the right place, but they're still tributary to their old-fashioned core processor. We decided to go back to the drawing board five years ago and develop our own. How much have you spent on the infrastructure of technology and the APIs, and how often do you go back and reinvest in it? Altogether, we have about 150 people in technology today. For a bank our size, that's um, roughly about 50% of our staff. So we no longer bank at the stage. We're a technology company. And we make sure that the rest of the staff is keeping us, you know, it's like a, the big white line on the highway. Make sure you don't cross the wires with the white line because now you're going to get off the road. And we're the maniacs driving within the white line. Compliance and risk management, that's the big white line. But while you're on the road, then it's up to us to try to innovate and try to find the fastest way to get to our destination or to get our clients to get to their destination. 
So that's yeah. really the mentality of the bank today. And who are your clients? Because they start off saying that they're, you do eight to 10 million loans a year to people, but now your clients are businesses, right? So who are the clients and how do you pick your clients and how do you pick your partnerships? So that's really key. And that folks said, so are you creating a bank? You're the founder of a bank. Well, who would you want to become? Like Chase? And uh, I was laughing at it and said, we'll never be a Chase. It's just impossible. We didn't start 150 years ago. And the critical mass that they have is just impossible to break in. There's a, an oligopoly of the big banks today, of the money centers. They have 40% of all deposits in the United States, and they control over 80% of all transactions. And that's just the fait accompli. And we have to accept it. The only way to be able to compete with them is if we use channel strategies. And if we use channels to originate loan and let the others originate those loans on our behalf, then we can potentially compete with them. And that's what happened on the marketplace lending side, on the PPP side for small businesses. And that has been our strategy since day one. We didn't think it was going to succeed that, to that extent, by the way. I mean, we're very surprised and not, not surprised, but pleased with our success. And that means that it's a good recipe for any community bank that wants to follow in those footsteps. The idea here, again, is really trying to identify the right channel to open the doors to their consumer base, which itself, by the way, could be somebody else's consumer base, like in the case of a firm. So a firm as Peloton and Walmart.com and Casper Mattresses and the host, they have 53 or 5,400 websites today that they cater to. So all these brands, they own the consumers. So, so they think. So they just need a financial outlet for them to be able to afford life. When they go to the checkout counter on Walmart.com, and they filled up a cart with $450 worth of goods, then they want to have to think twice, oh, maybe that's a good idea for me to pay 20 bucks a month for the next two years. So that's what we are offering in combination, in tandem with a company like a farm. So take me through the chain. So Walmart, the customer obviously buys at walmart.com. And then how does it relate to a firm and then to Crossover? How does the chain flow? So a firm controls the front-end experience or the user interface. So that means that they have the application processing, so taking, processing, the underwriting engine underneath. And then concurrently with us, we prepare the disclosures and the loan documents that get pushed through and signed by the consumers electronically, naturally, by accepting basically the loan. And then we work together on the financing of that loan, on pushing payments towards the merchant in that case. Yeah. In the case of a debt consolidation loan, like in the case of Upgrade or Upstart, so that's a classic pushing payments directly to the consumer and then let them settle the debt themselves. Or now we have a new product with RPPS, which automatically sends checks to the creditors directly. So that creates a certainty of loan purpose. In other words, people could pretend to pay off their loans, but once they have the money in the bank, then they could do anything they want. They don't have a gun to their head to say, you have to pay your creditors immediately. They could turn around and take a trip to the Bahamas if they wanted to. In order to augment the credit worthiness and the uh, underwriting standard of that customer, paying the creditors directly has a lot of value from a credit worthiness standpoint and a pricing of the loan standpoint. Correct. So you play the role as a real back office digital payment system for channels that you have, or you could also direct. And by building the bank at the ground up level with a technology focus, you can build more efficiently and in a more consumer friendly way 
because you're really providing the cash access right away right. versus the bank model, which is obviously has the benefit of scale, but really hard to build from scratch again using technology versus having it as kind of a, an internal disruptor, but not the whole story. That's right. And if you add, in addition to that, there are multiple touch points to both the customers and the consumers. So in other words, we also provide balance sheet services. Like, for example, we want to provide liquidity to our partners. During COVID, we continued funding the loans because we didn't want people to be left hanging. Both our clients and our consumers and their clients and their customers. So it was key for us to have the balance sheet. The only way to have a balance sheet, obviously, is to have cheap access to capital. That you can only do if you're a bank. So the combination of fintech universe, but also touch points to make sure that a sustainability in the business model is something that is extremely unique. That's very difficult to replicate. It's very difficult. So let's talk about COVID. You're sitting here in March. Cross River is roughly what size of a company in terms of its profile revenue or assets or whatever it is? So just here the year at 200 million dollars in revenue, roughly about $2 billion in assets. And this is last year. That was last year. Originated yeah. roughly about $1.2, $1.3 billion a month. And that represented roughly about a million consumers, call it. Steady as she goes. Steady, doing about four to five million payments a month, again, to consumers on behalf of our payment clients. And then starting a new business, which is banking as a service, providing a firm, for example, a firm's customers, the ability to open bank accounts and providing a high yield savings to them. Same thing with Upgrade, same thing with Marlet and uh, a couple of others that we're in the process of rolling out. That was the business model that was getting into 2020. Then COVID hits in March, unfortunately, as far as we know, maybe it hit earlier from a health perspective, but from a financial perspective, it really became a mass pandemic in mid-March. There's a glowing article in the New York Times about how Crossover immediately sprang into action and help get hundreds of thousands of small business loans in place. What was going through your head as a CEO and obviously the company in March as the uh, calamity hit and as people really were in not only need of financial help in terms of businesses, but also the future was murky and completely unpredictable for every business. So I think the, the number one model of doing this was, if we go to sleep tonight, that's a business that is not gonna to survive tomorrow. We need to focus on closing as many of those loans as possible uh, so that we play our role in this economy. The reason why we've been put in this position, that means from a technology standpoint, being able to re-engineer the e-trans system, being able to automate the application process, the underwriting process, and then the ACA chain of the clients after they've been docusigned. So the whole gamut, the full gamut and to be able to do that in less than two weeks. So that's the key. We were nimble enough. We were audacious enough to be able to say, we're going to try. We're going to give it a shot. We may fall flat on our face. And we don't care if we're an embarrassment to the economy and to our industry. It doesn't matter. We've been put in this position. We ought to try it because we have a role to play. And our role is not necessarily to cater to the 2 million plus loans. We wanted specifically to focus on the smallest loans, the ones that were not being taken care of by the big banks particularly. Our average loan size is under $23,000. To a business. Correct. Wow. And so that's where you say make it up in volume. 
you really made it up in volume because there was a need. That's right. So there was a need that we needed to fulfill. And we felt that we've been prepared up until that point with those qualifications that were required in order to carry out a successful program. Now, imagine the law is changing every single day. The rules are changing under us. The funding rules are changing. So what do we do? So we said, let's go stringent. So in other words, let's put as much cash as possible on balance sheet. Because in case the Fed doesn't come through with their facility, we need to be able to fund like $2 billion a day of loans. You never know what's going to happen. So we actually did raise $2 billion of liquidity. That cost a lot of money because we paid very high yield on those and we we're locked in for a year. But we didn't care. It didn't matter. PL was not an object at that time. We said we put people over profits, but you put other businesses, people over your profits. That's right. That was the objective. And if the chips fall in the right place, you know what? Then that's a nice reward, but not a reward that we expected to begin with. The board was behind us and um, the entire employership was behind us. Everybody laid a hand. We had 380, maybe 400 employees. We wanted every single one of us. We participated in the success of that endeavor. And that's just tells to the character of this enterprise. You take on leverage of a different kind. You're always used to taking on leverage in your mortgage example, 20 to 1 you mentioned. But this is leveraging the business for the sake of real um, necessity for others, which is a nice place to be to risk yourself for others, which is basically a lesson from the Talmud you mentioned. So fast forward, now today, we're about $12 billion in assets. So we multiply sixfold, and the reason basically is because we have $8 billion of PPP loans on our balance sheet. And also we have $2 billion of cash because we didn't end up using it or needing it because the Fed actually came through in a big way. So with the window, and uh, they actually funded loans same day as opposed to what we thought originally was going to be every three days. So all in all, it's a good outcome. It's a good result. We're very happy we managed to help 200,000 businesses. The job is not over. We need to make sure they get forgiveness properly because there is a, um, a bill that was supposed to pass with the skinny bill in Congress that was shut down in the House with regards to the sub $150,000 loan that were being provided safe harbor on an automatic forgiveness. That didn't get through because the skinny bill didn't get through. Hopefully, uh, Congress is going to provide those small businesses. I mean, can you imagine like the pizza shop around the corner needs that forgiveness and they don't need to be bogged down by give me all your banking statements for the past six months and uh, prove to me that you paid yourself as opposed to paying something else. When you are making $65,000 a year, who cares? I mean, if that guy got that loan, he deserved it. He deserved yes. it because that sustained his business. That kept him afloat during that time. And we need to be able to continue that endeavor. So in other words, we're fighting on the hill ourselves. We have a team of government affairs professionals that are talking to the hill, to senators and congressmen, to make them understand that this is an integral part of the success of this program. What is Crossover's relationship with the government? Because at the beginning, they were very much kind of hand in glove with you because obviously the stimulus really flowed through Cross River in a lot of ways, among others. Have you hit the radar screen, so to speak? And, and how do you have leverage, so to speak, to continue to get that skinny bill across? We've been pretty active on the Hill just as a matter of uh, principles because we believe in what we do as a marketplace lending industry leader. 
we need to be at the forefront of anything marketplace lending regulation related. We did, and we continue to have a fairly potent government affairs office led by Phil Goldfeder, both here in New York, in the state, but also across probably the majority of the states, particularly the states that we consider at risk, like states that have been fending off the true lender status of the bank in that business model. We just had a settlement with the state of Colorado, which was a huge victory for the industry. That was a couple of weeks ago. And that made really big splashes. And hopefully that's going to catch on and many states are going to follow suit. But we're also very active on the Hill and helping. Like, for example, we are very tight with pretty much everybody on the Senate Banking Committee and the um, Financial Services Subcommittee of the House. We talk to them all the time on both sides of the aisle. We provide them with data a ton of data in order for them to be able to analyze their own state, because obviously they want to satisfy their constituents and understand their, the ramifications of lending programs in their state, but also on the Hill for the broader you know, accessibility credit equation. It needs to be spoken at length because there's way too much at stake here in, um, that could be occulted by consumer groups that are trying to fend off just under the disguise of political agendas. As long as we have a dialogue that remains open and we explain each other's and the fact that there are good actors and they're bad actors, don't put everybody in the same bag under the pretense of consumer protection. Ultimately, what the Madden Midland decision did is that it really stopped accessibility to credit to the folks in the three states that it touched, which is New York, Vermont, and Connecticut. And that's a fact. And we're trying to bring that at the forefront so that nobody is left behind. There's no reason for New York State constituents to not have access to a program that is affordable, that enables them to access credit when they can't get that credit anywhere else. Yeah. So these are some of the key elements of discussions that we're trying to bring at the forefront through our government office office. And it has worked thus far. I think we have a listening ear from uh, folks on both sides of the aisle. Do you think realistically we'll get a second stimulus before the election? That looks more compromised than before the summer. And, if, and before recess, there right. was a very strong chance and that didn't pan out. And now before the election, it's going to be very difficult because folks who just want to stay put, they want to stick to their positions. But it's very possible that a just a really skinny bill just around the forgiveness program which doesn't touch any additional stimulus, which is very controversial on both sides of the aisle, and that's the point of contention, is what should be included and who should be the beneficiaries of that bill. But if we focus only on the old stuff, which is PPP phase one and two, then I think we have a fighting chance to get something done before the elections on the forgiveness subject. Now, for Cross River, you are a self-reliant entrepreneur versus relying on uh, the help of others, although your points are very logical and full of common sense, and hopefully that does come around the corner. Cross River, how well capitalizes the company, and can you take on these loans and obviously position the business now for further help and further success? And so what, what's the capitalization of the company? So, you know, we work here. We have a bank uh, hold co, uh, which owns 100% of the bank underneath. The bank is extremely well capitalized and uh, the bank hold co is very well capitalized as well through an injection of equity, a combination of equity and sub debt, which is considered tier two capital at the bank level. So that means that we could use the capital for leverage. That has been our business model for pretty much the past three years because we became eligible to borrow money 
through the Subdebt product. So we just completed a deal that was led by Piper Sandler for 106 million. That was uh, about a month ago. So very successful transaction in the market. That really helps us to bolster our equity position at the bank level. In addition, we did take some equity from um, our friends at Shepherd Capital recently. That was our first valuation above a billion dollars. So technically a unicorn, although that term is going to have to be revised because now a lot more companies are raising money at the billion dollar level, although we probably have the revenues to justify that value. Yeah, congratulations. That's a robust, healthy, well-deserved valuation given your success. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we may take some more money from them towards the end of the year just to be a little bit more robust as we get into potentially an IPO period so that we're not tributary to potential negotiation techniques from investors by saying, oh, if you need the capital, maybe you'll take less evaluation. At that time, we would like to be in the driver's seat in the valuation discussion. Yes. Uh, so although we probably don't need more capital at this stage, we're growing at a, a very steady pace. And we can absorb probably another, I would say about doubling of our top line at this stage. We're probably going to clear 300 million this year in terms of revenue. That's up, I believe so far it's 56% based on last year, you know, technically down year for a lot of people. So that's a welcome development, yes. whether it's, uh, by the way, pre-COVID activity or post-COVID activity. Either way, you would look like having a double year over year. Correct. Wow. And when you look at the fintech landscape and crossover's place in it, and this will be especially important if you do pursue an IPO and really positioning the story, but either way, how does crossover compare to other fintech companies that do exactly what you do or build a technology stack and are well-resourced and have a great digital payments platform and, and lending platform? Where does crossover fit in the ecosystem? That's a great question. And this is something that we're going to count on our advisors to help us tell the story properly. It's really key to understand the entire ecosystem. So in other words, you may call yourself a fintech company and act like a fintech company. However, if you're relying very heavily on a bank core or accessibility to payment rails through a bank in order to conduct your business, then having the combination of both in a seamless entity and exercise, I think is a heck of a lot more compelling. So you may have the bank element, which technically drives the valuation down because you're technically a bank, but nonetheless, that bank element may propel the fintech component even to new heights or scalability. The problem that we've encountered in a lot of the clients that we're winning lately is the fact that they have a scalability issue. They go with somebody who is more like avant-gardist, uh, somebody who has gotten like the unicorn valuation recently, and who is uh, very good at selling their products. And then people realize that the payment companies that are becoming clients of those fintechs, they're saying, you know what, we have a scalability issue here. We have a reliability issue and a pricing issue. Let's try something else. What about Crossroad Bank? We heard about them. They may in the market for a while. They're a bank, so maybe we could bypass having to fill two applications, one to a bank and one to the fintech player, and maybe everything is under one roof. And that's what we're seeing now. And obviously, because we've been in the market for over 10 years, in the fintech market, both on the lending side and the payment side, we have uh, demonstrated ability to really scale up significantly for those companies. And that's how we're winning new business from older companies or companies that are more established with a ton of volume coming our way. So I would say that's a key differentiator is the combination of both is very powerful, provided again, that you have a perfect compliance wrap 
risk management, but also underlying a technology that is second to none. And that yep. technology is not necessarily a front end technology, but, but more so a core basic and with an API layer that is very robust. And so is there a public company in the FinTech area that you feel like is a very good peer benchmark? There's no pure, I would say you would have to put probably Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Square, Stripe in the same bucket, although Stripe obviously is not public, but we have an idea of the kind of valuation that they command. For a competitive company analysis, we're much smaller naturally, but I think our revenues are more robust, more steady, and also particularly our profitability is uh, far greater from a, a margin standpoint. And the utility in all market cycles, particularly the current situation, which uh, could sustain for a while, is very well suited for your business model. That's right. The, the, being an, an infrastructure play in this environment is key. I think that the banking industry as a whole is poised for disruption in a good way. So in other words, it's not the banks that are going to disappear the same way that the bookstores disappeared when Amazon came about or Blockbuster disappeared after Netflix came about. It's totally different. In this case, the banks could continue to thrive provided they reach out to folks like us, for example, to provide them with the technology wrap that we've been discussing for the past 45 minutes. This is something that is totally doable for us and that we hope that we can tap into one day. And then you also have the non-banks or because everybody's a fintech today, right? And a lot of the merchants, they want to reach out and say, we'd like to reach out to our consumers and offer them a bank product or a lending product. Can you help us? We want right. to be able to provide it all. You're very big on the partnership model, which is great. But certainly, altruism aside, when you look at the current ecosystem and economy post-COVID on Main Street, not all the businesses are going to survive. How do you select which ones that you want to really help through loans and which ones you say, I'd love to be helpful, and obviously that's part of your DNA as a company, but it's really not a good loan for you to make so forget the lending side for a moment. Our lending activity is pretty much traditional in the sense that we go through a rigorous underwriting criteria in program, risk management, credit analysis. I would say the way we approach the fintechs themselves that want to become clients of the bank and to help them develop what the best they can be, I have to go through a very rigorous due diligence program. And that includes compliance, risk management, technology, licensing, management itself. And uh, particularly, like, for example, do they have adequate staff on knowledge of BSA matters, of, of consumer compliance, consumer protection? So all this is critical. So they go through a very rigorous program, and that weeds out the bad apples. The folks that are not equipped, that are not prepared, these are the ones who are not going to pass master with us. And we've said no to a number of companies that just didn't make it, didn't cut it. Now, the fact that those companies, whether they're still alive or not today, most of them are not. And the reason is because it starts right there. Fortunately for the consumers, unfortunately for some of those companies that don't understand it, this is a very highly regulated industry. And this is something that we're trying to bring at the foray. So we start with the compliance, regulatory compliance. That's where it starts. That 200 years of legacy regulatory compliance that we inherited by being a bank chartered company. That's what we bring to the table. That's our first competitive advantage. The technology could be disrupted. The technology could be competed on. 
you always have a bunch of Silicon Valley folks or even Chase or Wells Fargo that ultimately are going to get it. But the combination of both and staying nimble and being able to adapt to new realities on the ground, on the fly, that's really the key here. The execution is equal, if not more important than the combination of compliance and technology combined together. Right. But you feel like given your lens and your bird's eye view of these 200,000 small businesses that you've been helping, do you feel like the economy could stay afloat to a large degree and come back the way that it was or some way around that, given your buoy of support and your buoyancy? I think there will be another stimulus before those companies really go haywire. We definitely have worrisome numbers on the unemployment side. And, and also we hear about a lot of companies falling by the wayside. Whether those companies would have disappeared or not, regardless of that, is a question that will be answered in the months and years to come. So in this case, we have a lot of businesses that have been able to be sustained thanks to the PPP program and the government stimulus package. We suspect that the government will step in, whether it's this government or the next one. Congress will step in before the businesses start to go by the wayside again. That is a firm belief that I have. I think they stepped in in a big way the first time around. There's no reason to believe that the second time around, it's not going to happen again. And Crossover, just to clarify, is primarily a domestic U.S.-based business given the charter, right? It's not a global business as yet. No, we do do a lot of international transactions, though. We have the ability to push the card, which we talked about before, internationally, which is very unique. We're the first bank in the country to be able to do that. So that means we could push payment to a country such as Mexico on a debit card in Mexico on a Mexican bank. Interesting. Question generationally, I mean, obviously uh, we don't fall into this category, but millennials and Gen Z and that demographic, how do they think about finance and banking as they're coming into the business world and the business environment and the economy? I think they think that the same way that they think about everything else, which is with a, a very severe ADD attitude, which is don't stick around too long on any bank account or any banking solution. Just hop around and discover. This has been the case. And that's the reason why you have all these neo banks spreading out. And a lot of them have the same consumers, by the way. They share the same consumers. And that's the interesting fact is the fact that people want to open different bank accounts and they're trying things out. And maybe some cater better to their needs at some point in their lifetime than you know something else at a different time. A very interesting dynamic is that we're much less loyal to our bank account and to our finances than in years past because everything is available and everything is ubiquitous and everything is accessible through a handheld. Yeah. I think that's really what has truly revolutionized finance. In addition, everybody's becoming a bank today, not necessarily without a banking charter, but everybody has the ability through a fintech endeavor, they have the ability to provide financial services to their consumers, either via loan or a bank account or a, a robo-advisor, whatever the case may be. Apple, in some ways, is a bank these days, like a technology platform. Exactly. How much disruption do you think is going to occur among the big legacy banks in the future when technology and banking become much more integrated than it is today? I think you're always going to need the big banks for big corps. You need that robustness, that balance sheet, that size, because it's very difficult to trust a $500 million capital company who is barely breaking even, like I'm talking about like probably a very prominent fintech, and to trust them to deposit, let's say, 
two billion dollars of your company's cash and to handle that kind of volume and wiring 250 million to purchase your next five Boeings. These are the type of transactions that you're always going to see in the big bank universe. In addition, you have also a network of correspondent banking that is very difficult to disrupt. Everybody is trying to disrupt the correspondent banking universe. Everyone. All the big fintechs. And it's very difficult to disrupt. So you're always going to need the big bank networks in order to always cater to those kind of mechanisms that's too entrenched in the economy. If that's going to be disrupted, it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be in the next decade. The smaller banks have, in the United States particularly, have something to worry about. And that's why they need to adopt and to embrace the partnership model as quickly as possible. There are enough companies going around, enough merchants going around for every bank in the country to be able to cater to that bank partnership model on the lending side and on the payment side. And this is something that they need to adopt very rapidly. They need to change their risk management mindset and dare to drain. That's really the big message here, is the fact that there is money to be made by everyone and risk to be taken by everyone in the ecosystem. Yep. How about the credit card companies? You're talking about issuers, you're talking about acquirers, you're talking about the networks. The issuers, are they in a disrupted, a vulnerable position or does the partnership model suffice? That's a very interesting question. And I'm going to play the fifth on this one because it's very difficult to tell whether a new company, a new entrant, who is going to try to cater the issuing market, but at the same time becoming a processor themselves, which everybody aspires to be today, whether that's going to pass muster with the regulators and that's going to pass muster with the consumers without too many hiccups. And only time will tell. That's why it's very difficult for me to tell at this stage. Being a processor is really very difficult and it's full of regulatory compliance obstacles along the way. And the fintechs have a tendency to call that part of the business. Say, oh, we're going to disrupt that industry. But then suddenly something hits big and they're not capitalized to be able to pay the fine. That's the issue. And only time will tell because we're all prone to make mistakes. It's inevitable. We have ourselves. This is something that we all need to humbly acknowledge. Yeah. Do you have any anecdotes or stories of any of the small and medium-sized businesses that you helped support during these last few months that have touched you and touched Cross River? Oh, we have so many. We could write a book with the emails that we received from all these businesses, to be honest with you. Literally people crying, pouring their hearts out to us, saying how we basically saved their lives, but also the lives of their 10 employees. And for businesses like spas or doctor's office or like I said, pizza stores, restaurants. I don't have necessarily one anecdote to share with you. It's just the outpouring of sentiments that came um, on the heels of the PPP program was really overwhelming. And this is the reason why we're doing this. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I want to just wrap up by asking you, uh, Jill, as you conduct yourself as an entrepreneur and always moving, always building, do you have a motto that you live by or you go by? Absolutely. The motto, and our investors know that, and our employees know that, is you do good, and then you will do well. It's not the opposite. You do good, you will do well. And it's not by doing well that you follow suit and then do good. It starts by being charitable and giving, and then things will fall into place. I love it. And then last question, do you have a book that's been very impactful to you personally and professionally? that you recommend or you hold dear to you? 
I did finish a very long book during COVID in the first couple of months. It's a uh, The Prime Ministers by Huda Avner. That was absolutely spectacular because the life of four million people basically in the hands of a handful of people, of a handful of state masters. And it was really phenomenal to see the development and the divine intervention along the way and the miracles that occurred. And, and once they're revealed, it's something that is truly spectacular. And I really highly recommend it just from a human standpoint, just to understand, really it puts things in perspective. And during COVID particularly, it put a lot of questions to bed very, very quickly. Like, what are we complaining about? At the end of the day, we're home with our families. Listen, I got to have dinner with my kids every single night. The last time that happened, it probably never happened in my entire life. Yeah. Also, there's a lot about leadership that I think has come up through this period. And I count you as one of the leaders I respect and admire. But what you're referencing is something that I've been thinking about a lot is you look at the environment and your first inclination is to feel that this is going to be taken care of by others. And all of a sudden, you realize that you could be part of the solution. And there's a select group of leaders that emerge from this crisis, like these prime ministers in a different way, and it can happen in any part of society, that say, it's not a passive view, it's an active view. Let's go and own this solution and fix this society and fix the business environment and fix, obviously, things like the markets and cities and other ways that we will benefit for the masses. But this is the moment to lead not to assume other ones, other people are going to do it for us. Yeah, you're 100% right. Yeah, well, Gilles, thank you so much for being with me today. And that was fun. That yeah, was you exceeded fun. all my expectations in terms of uh, what we were going to talk about and going beyond just the business uh, fundamentals. And, and thank God for what you've been doing and for what Cross River has been doing. And I wish you all the success and sustenance and backing to continue on the mission. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, Gilles. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.